This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. It is Thursday, January the 20th. I'm John Dunn, and yeah, it's the first month of the year, 2022. And if there's one thing the last two years should have taught us, it's that we have very little chance of actually predicting what is going to happen the rest of the year. But there's something to be said for scenario planning, futuring futurism, as it's sometimes called, the practice of looking ahead, taking different factors into account, and thinking about what might happen. Because if it does, then we're just that much better prepared for it. Now, today's episode isn't about futurism specifically, although that might make for a fun episode someday. We thought it might be interesting to look at the vast number of things happening across the animal welfare industry right now and whittle them down to a few. What do we think the biggest things are to watch for this year? Maybe just stop and give some thought about what they will mean. And of course, we'll keep it practical. So to chat through this list of five, we talked with Stacy Rogers. She's a colleague here at Best Friends. She's the regional director for the Midwest and Great Plains region. Stacy, for people who are maybe not familiar with the national regional programs work of Best Friends, how that works, can you just run through that? Yeah, so the regional teams are really here to support those local shelters in the community, the network partners, the shelters that are thinking about becoming partners to really help them ramp up their programs. So whatever they need assistance with that's going to help them increase their life saving, we're there to get them that support. And whether that's something we do ourselves on our regional team or whether we connect them with another best friends resource or a different team, that really depends on their needs. Um, but we really want to customize it to each individual shelter and try to really understand that every community is a little bit different, but the programs and the systems, they're going to work everywhere. We just have to adjust it to that local community. And that's why we work so closely with the shelter so that we make sure it's going to fit them and their needs and their resources. I looked pretty recently, uh, and I think at last check, it was about 3,200, more than 3,200 network partners. They're shelters, rescue groups, span neuter organizations all across America. So that's a lot. You know, how many Stacys are there? How many organizations do you work with? Uh, you know, how do we decide who we're working with uh, and when? I'm the regional director for the Midwest and the Great Plains. Yeah, and we have a team of three. So between the three of us, we're covering an area from West Virginia all the way to the Dakotas. That's a lot. Yeah. And we've split that up kind of based on the number of shelters in every state. So personally, my portfolio contains six of those states because they're some of our lesser populated areas. Um, and then beyond the Midwest and the Great Plains, there's a whole team taking on the eastern edge of the country, the Pacific region on the West Coast, and then a team doing the South Central area with the southern parts of the country. It's a lot of area, a lot of relationships, a lot of different communities and organizations. But as we talk about some of these trends and things you're seeing out there, I just want to point out that, you know, you're not just sitting in your home office like yours truly, you know, you're really out there, you're on the road, you're talking to folks, you're really seeing what's happening out there. I'm at the majority of the year, usually trying for at least a couple trips a month, kind of depending on the time and the needs and what the shelters are like. Um, so definitely in there with the team, I come from an animal shelter background. So does the rest of the team in this region and most of the regional employees. So I think, you know, once we get out and we're able to see people in person and let them know that, you know, we're not just sitting at home in our home office telling them what they should do, that we've really you know, been in their shoes, experienced those things, and had to make the changes that they're looking at now. 
It's an interesting time in animal welfare, isn't it? Uh, you know, COVID aside, I think if we weren't dealing with it, we'd still be talking about these things. It's just got this added you know, complexity, this pandemic endemic layer. So we asked a bunch of different people what they thought would be the biggest topics this year, and we whittled it down to five. So let's start with the one people most often cited, which was community-supported sheltering. We're going to be talking about that a lot in 2022. What is it and, and why are we going to be talking about it more? Community-based sheltering is really helping your entire community be involved in the pet issues. You know, it's not just the shelter whose responsibility it is to make your community safe for pets. It's everybody there. So part of that is trying to keep pets out of your shelter. We spent a lot of years telling people to pick up every stray pet they had and bring it to the shelter. And now we're trying to kind of change that with let's talk to them about how to get that pet back home before it comes to the shelter. So if the shelter is there just for those ones that really need it, um, that could be you know, going door to door in their neighborhood. It can be turning them from finder into foster so that if they find a stray pet and they're able to keep it for that stray hold, let it stay out of the shelter, let them work their local network to get that pet back to a person. You know, Helping families who might have previously surrendered to the shelter find the resources they need to keep that pet so that we can keep pets with their original families and with the homes where they're loved and already out there. So it's really just kind of embracing that idea that everybody is there to help and trying to really trust your community. Where in the past, I think sometimes there was kind of that distrust between the shelter and the community. It's now really to both sides trust that the shelter is doing everything they can to help and that the community is trustworthy enough to help on the other side. COVID's impact, obviously big in this area, you know, if your shelter had to close because of COVID restrictions, you had to adapt. You had to figure out a way to deal with it. And some of these are big changes. If you were taking every pet that came in, including friendly cats and kittens, which we can talk about later, that's a big shift to have to say, we're not doing that anymore. Now we're going to do this. I mean, we had a group in West Virginia who previously had a save rate in the 40% range. And they decided at the start of 2020 that they didn't want to do that anymore. They implemented a foster program. They stopped taking in any stray cats that weren't friendly enough to be placed up for adoption. And they have a save rate of 94% for 2021. So, you know, it's possible to make those huge changes in rural communities. But we also saw cities really ramping up what they were doing, you know, in the city of Chicago, they knew they needed to get more dogs out of Chicago animal care and control. And one tail at a time went really hard on fosters and ended up breaking their website with such a huge response to getting foster parents. We saw shelters, you know, all over emptying their kettle floors when they thought they were going to need those kettles for COVID quarantine animals at the very beginning of the pandemic. So I think, you know, we just saw those shelters that realized when they asked for help, that help was out there. They just needed to be pushing for it. And some groups who hadn't previously, Kent County Animal Shelter is a great example. They had been thinking about a foster program, but they had been really starting it in kind of a slow process and COVID pushed them to have to start it immediately because they needed it. So I think it just really pushed a lot of things that were maybe moving slow with some groups really into overdrive. So all of these trends, quote unquote, uh, you know, they're big topics all on their own. So we're going to have resources on the podcast website where you'll be able to dive deeper into each of them. And of course, we've done episodes in the past on them. We'll be doing more this year. So for this episode, just trying to keep it sort of at a high level. But again, bestfriends.org slash podcast. We'll also have a link in the show notes area on your podcast player. So trend number two sounds weird to even call fostering a trend because it's not new by any stretch. But as you just pointed out, it is a big part of community supported sheltering. But why is fostering on this list? 
Is it simply because we just don't want animals going into the shelter if they don't need to be there? I think not bringing animals in as much. And we've also been seeing shelters filling up. Length of stays are increasing a little bit over time. So it's going to be important to get those pets back out of the shelter and into foster homes. And I think what we saw with the pandemic was when you ask for help, it's there. And when groups really said, you know, we need our big dogs out of the kennels, they realized, oh, people will foster big dogs and not just kittens and easier animals to take home. So I think, you know, this year as we see shelters, that intake ramping back up and groups wanting to move more towards that community supported sheltering, they're going to have to go back out just as hard as they did at the beginning of the pandemic, really figuring out how to recruit those fosters for the pets that most need out of the shelter, and also how then to move those animals into adoptive homes. Because sometimes we see that being the bottleneck. You can put them out in foster care, but you don't want them to sit there. You want them to get adopted. So then it's trusting your foster parents to help with that adoption process. We can't just say, hey, let's you know do more of that, and then magically it happens and it's successful. It takes the right approach, tools, staffing, training, to implement and scale any program, including fostering. I know a lot of organizations, you know, using messy spreadsheets or whatever. I mean, so when you're working with organizations to help them scale their foster program in 2022, what can groups be looking for? What should they be thinking about? What should they be doing when it comes to scaling up their foster program? I think it's looking about how you're using your staff. And we've talked to groups who've said, well, you know, previously we had a lot of animal care attendants who were helping care for the animals in the building, but we have one foster coordinator. If you turn a few of those animal care attendants into foster coordinators, suddenly you can take care of all those animals much more quickly with them out of the building and give people kind of that higher level position where they can really build job skills and you're not taking care of everybody in that shelter. You're just assigning those animals to your foster coordinators. So I think there's ways to kind of look at your staff to help that staffing issue. There's programs like Maddie's shelter assistant that will send automatic emails out to your foster parents. You can get on programs where you have mentors. So you have foster parents mentoring other foster parents so that they're kind of that first line of defense if the newer foster parents have questions. Um, So it's really just figuring out the system that's going to work for you. And, you know, we have saw some great systems just with Excel spreadsheets where they're checking in every day. Like, what have we seen? What's our task for today? What animal is going out and who's it going to? So I think a lot of it is just getting that core organization down and figuring out what's going to work well for the size of your program. Well, that's a great segue into staffing, which is one of the top five. Uh, you know, I think if we had to place bets on one topic nationally that's affecting everyone, it's not just animal welfare, and it's going to be persistent throughout the year, I think for me, it would have to be staffing. Keep seeing these headlines, you know, this mass exodus from the workforce, people reevaluating their careers, certainly the case for animal welfare, difficult to find people, difficult to keep people, problems like compassion fatigue, burnout, it's just all magnified right now. So what do you think the outlook is for staffing this year? And again, any examples you have where shelters, rescue organizations have found ways to, to manage through this staffing crisis? You know, one strategy is looking at your org chart and trying to figure out, you know, can I reorganize this so that I can work with fewer people to help just as many, if not more animals? Can I have foster coordinators each with a specific caseload that they're going to work on and really help? I think part of keeping your people is to make them feel engaged, help them learn new skills, help them feel like they're building a career and it's not just a job. And so I think that's a really good way to do it is to give them those higher level jobs and help each person kind of become an expert in their specific area. 
And it's also building out your volunteer program. If you can't get as many paid staff in, you try to leverage those volunteers and give the volunteers the space to really get good at what they're doing. You know, let your volunteers complete adoptions and do offsite events on their own and do all of those things just as a staff person would so that you're building really that team of people who are going to help. And then I think you also just need to get creative with recruiting. We just saw Indianapolis Animal Care Services open for what they called like a rapid fire hiring event last week. They just set a specific number of hours in the day and said, if you're looking for a job, come and interview with us during any point in this time. And they ended up filling all of their empty positions they had right then. So I think it is just going to take that creativity and also, you know, on some parts, fundraising. We're going to have to raise our budgets so that we can afford to pay people a wage that they can afford to live on for a long time animal organizations and all nonprofits have kind of said, well, you know, we're nonprofit organizations. We don't have a lot of money. We just can't pay very high. But these people are doing jobs that take a lot of skills. They're mentally demanding. They're physically demanding. And we're going to need to recognize that with the benefits and the salary that we pay. Well, I think it speaks to the need to really keep on top of your strategic planning, right? I mean, you got to keep on top of the changes and make sure you're prepared. Too many organizations, I think, are just constantly in reactive mode. And if you are just reacting, it's like you're always going to be caught flat-footed. Maybe not always, but at times you're going to be caught flat-footed and then you're in real trouble, right? So being proactive is a big key. You know, even if you didn't think you'd be doing this kind of planning in 2022, maybe you should be. Yeah, so many groups are just living in that day-to-day reactionary world, just trying to survive. But it's really important to take a little bit of time and think about, you know, what changes have we made and what do we need to do over the next three to five years to make those changes sustainable, to figure out how we're going to operate with all of the changes that have came along. And I think a big part of that is going to be what staffing do I need now? If you're looking at community-supported sheltering, you're going to need some people who are trained in that. You might need a social worker on staff. If you're moving to more foster care-based, you need to figure out how many animals each foster coordinator can handle and figure out how many foster coordinators you need. You might need new systems in place because part of your team isn't going to be there on site every day. So I think it's really looking at how you're operating today and then figuring out how that's going to look as you move forward. That social worker concept, I was just talking with someone this week about it, actually, you know, finding people with at least a bit of a background in that field is important, but it's not easy. And, you know, it makes me wonder, does it always need to be a paid position within the animal shelter? Can it be through a partnership? You know, the Catholic Charities Partnership work, we covered that episode 91. The social service folks are, they're already doing that work, right? We're already doing animal work. They have clients that need animal help and we have pet owners that need social service help. So, you know, no time like the present, I think, to get out there and try to forge those relationships. Yeah, I think sometimes it's just getting out there and really, you know, if you're the executive director or that's your purview in the position you're in, getting out there, talking to all those human service groups and saying, you know, here's what we're doing. We want to make sure that we're working together on our programs. You know, when I was an executive director, I went to our local transitional housing and said, you know, we're already keeping some pets for people who are without housing for a short period of time. Like, what can we do to make it easier for them? And we realized that it was better for them to send us references. It was easier to have pet food at the transitional housing center rather than at the shelter where it was a longer drive. So I think it's really getting out there and networking and learning what programs, what services are available in your community and trying to get everybody together. 
it might be more of a time for less of a coalition of just animal orgs and be a coalition of just local services and making sure that those human services see that animal services are just as based on helping humans as they are so that you're at the table for all those local decisions. Well, let's go back to the list, move on to number four, an issue we know is going to be a big one for 2022. It's the situation with veterinarians. The big issue being there aren't any. Uh, You know, we've struggled historically to get vets into the shelter medicine area and the number of private veterinarians with the capacity to work with shelters and rescues just seems to be constantly declining, huge backups. I mean, here in West Michigan, it can be weeks, months to get just basic appointments for own pets. So in some cases, it's not even about finding vets who are willing to work with shelters and rescues. They just can't. So what is the outlook for veterinary issues in 2022? And what can folks do, do you think, to try to get through this? We saw a few groups, you know, in larger communities, if there are more than one shelter, sometimes looking at groups who've even looked at hiring a vet to share between shelters so that if they can only afford a part-time vet and that's really hard to hire, they can hire somebody full-time who works within a couple organizations working at vet sharing, where if they just happen to be without a vet for a short period of time, they can use someone else's services to kind of put a bandaid on that and keep caught up until they get operating again at their organization. So encouraging groups, you know, look at what you've been traditionally treating and do you need to do that while the animal's still in the shelter? If your bottleneck is waiting on dogs to get through heartworm treatment or waiting on dentals to be done, you know, can you trust your adopters that if they say, I'll take this cat in for a dental when I can get it into my personal vet and adopt it today, you know, trust those people to do that and let that cat go home. Or if, you know, spay neuter is your backup, can you do foster to adopt? Let them go home before they're spayed and neutered, have them come back when they get an appointment, or even go back to a spay neuter contract. We've had groups do that, and their results have shown that most people do go ahead and fulfill that need. And if bottlenecking those animals in the shelter is causing them not to get a live outcome, it's better to get them out with that contract than lose them because you're bottlenecked just waiting on a vet to spay and neuter. Well, that's controversial. It is. (laughs) Well, our colleague Liz Finch just published an editorial this week. She interviewed Sue Cosby about the practice of adopting out unaltered animals. Again, a link in the show notes on the website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. And we are going to be doing an upcoming episode on this topic. It is a life-saving strategy. Is it something that should be done everywhere in every circumstance with every adopter? Obviously not. But I think, man, you know, I think we just have to ask ourselves, Ultimately, what's better, an intact animal going out the front door with, say, a spay-neuter contract or that animal going out the back door? Desperate times call for desperate measures, I think, as they say. And, you know, our field is full of creative geniuses who daily, you know, I think, find ways to do the impossible. So, you know, let's work constructively through these problems to find some solutions. I'll admit, I mean, it was a huge stepping stone for my organization when we started fixing everything prior to adoption, you know, 16, 17 years ago. But now that we're saying maybe go back to the way it was before then seems a little hard to take, but you know, you have to think about what's the best outcome for that pet. And if you are backed up for months, I've talked to organizations who are two months out from a spay neuter appointment. You don't want to have any cat in your shelter for two months waiting just to get spayed or neutered so that it can go home. So it's really looking at, you know, what are your options in this dire time. And as you try to hire a vet, looking at the best offer that you can make to get somebody into your shelter. I love that. You know, looking at the org chart, looking at the things that need to be done day to day, figuring out how to maximize what you do have. 
Maybe it's as simple as empowering your animal care staff to take on some of the veterinary tasks, laws, rules, whatnot, different everywhere. So make sure you're taking that into account. But, you know, we so often talk about trusting the public, but maybe we should also be trusting our staff. Yeah. To make sure, you know, that you're doing everything you can with just your regular staff. It's going to give them skills. It's going to save you time. So to make sure that whatever that veterinarian's doing, that they're doing the most they can in the time they have available and the most important things to get those animals out. Let's go to the fifth item on the list. Uh, Probably no surprise again, and that's cats. We're just not making progress on saving cats like we should be, like we need to be. Nationally, uh, still a two to one ratio, which means for every healthy or treatable dog that loses its life in a shelter, two cats are dying. We'll have the new data set available in a few months to, to better understand what happened in 2021, but I don't know that we can expect any dramatic improvement. Do you think things did improve in 2021 for cats? You know, what are you seeing and hearing out there? Yeah, I think, you know, I hope we're saving more cats when the new data set comes out, but it really wouldn't surprise me if that gap between cat and dog life saving actually increases. So I think it really takes, you know, it's kind of like when you said it was controversial to not spay and neuter them before they leave. It's also controversial to say, just stop taking those cats. (laughs) You know, we want to keep those cats where they're safe, where they're healthy, where they have families who love them. So if you're taking in stray cats, return them back to where they were found. You know, hopefully you have the or capacity to figure out how to fix those cats, put them back in the neighborhood that they came from, because, you know, whether they're a friendly or an unfriendly cat from that neighborhood, if they are friendly, somebody made them that way. That means they have a home out there. If they're healthy, they're getting fed, they're getting taken care of. Let them go back to those people. Don't catnap somebody's indoor-outdoor cat that they already love and that they're already taking care of. If your field officers are picking up stray cats in the field, Unless it's obligated by your contract, stop wasting time picking up stray cats. If you're running out traps to trap feral cats in your community, rent those traps out for trap neuter release programs, but don't rent them out just to have that cat trapped and brought back to you when you don't have an option for how to get it back out of your building alive. Run out deterrence for people to keep them out of their yard. And I think really start building that conversation around, you know, cats do have a community. They live out in your community. They don't all need picked up, brought in, and rehomed to somebody who's going to keep them inside all the time. I feel like somewhat of a broken record on this, Stacey, but I keep trying to say it louder for the folks in the back as they say, you know, if you see a friendly cat in your neighborhood, you decide to rescue that cat, rescue in quotes, the person who owned that cat is not only dealing with losing their pet because they have no idea where where their cat is, but eventually, I think the odds are they're going to get a new cat. So you're just going to be in this cycle, as you said, of cat napping. Uh, and I have someone in my neighborhood. They, they let their cats out. We've struggled with nuisance issues. Our cats go bananas. And it started a pee war on the inside and outside of the front door this summer. Just uh, really a struggle. Just, I mean, do I like the cats outside? No. I mean, it's cold here right now. But I also know I just can't take her cats. So all we can do is do the best we can. We'll put a heated water bowl out. We'll put a shelter out. We'll exchange contact information. If something happens and they're not going to be home like they thought they were going to be, you know, we can care for the cat short term because, you know, if we take the cats, we're just going to end up back at square one. So I think at some point we just have to be pragmatists. I think that's part of the community supported sheltering. I'm working with a group in North Dakota and they're 
pondering the idea of starting a community cat program, but they said, you know, they get negative 40 wind chills all winter. And she's like, you know, my team is really hesitant to release cats right back out into negative 40 weather. Well, you know, you need to think about what you're comfortable with. Like it also gives you the chance for those people who do still have outdoor cats in Minot, North Dakota, you know, build cat shelters, show people how to get an appropriate warm shelter for their cat that's outside. I was talking to somebody this week and when I mentioned I have a barn cat, they're like, oh, you know, what do you do about water when everything's frozen? I'm like, oh, we have a plug-in water bowl so that she can drink all the time and never freezes. So it's just kind of sharing that information so that you can help people be the best pet owners that they can be. They're not going about it judgmentally and just picking up that cat and saying, well, we're going to take you inside (laughs) and find you a better home. But say, you know, can we make the home you have a little bit better for you and give you something out there? A tangential issue to that, uh, which I think probably deserves an honorable mention as far as the 2022 list, is communication within your organization, with the public. We saw so many communities go to a managed intake, managed admission model because of COVID. They had no other choice. But if you're not clearly communicating with the public about what that means and why and what they can do, you know, if someone calls and says, hey, I found some cats. And you just say, great, uh, we're not taking cats right now. Have a good day. Click. That's not going to go well. Yeah, you have to have the messaging and be ready to move forward with it. You know, We have great trainings on community cat mitigation, specifically how to talk to people that have found a stray cat or that have issues with cats in their neighborhood, You know, how to talk with them, calm them down, let them see the reasons why that cat should stay out there. And you know, as people are bringing in cats, you want to give them that option. If that cat doesn't have an ear tip and you don't think it's altered, Hopefully you have the vet access to give them information on TNR and get that cat fixed so that when it's back out there, it's not going to have kittens next year and be contributing to more cats living outside. You know, have a messaging on your website. The Kanawha Charleston Humane Association has great messaging on their page about, you know, we do not accept healthy, friendly stray cats. We will take injured cats. We will take ill cats. We will take cats actively giving birth. (laughs) But, you know, we're not going to take just the healthy, friendly stray. If you find one of these, here are the options you can do to help that cat. You want to keep the shelter open so that you're not overfilling it with cats who would be happy and healthy outside. So you have room for those cats that need your help finding another home. That indoor cat whose owner has passed away. The indoor cat who you realize did get left behind when somebody moved. You want to be able to have those cats and then you want to be able to move them quickly. So you want to have those adoption processes that are easy for people to adopt a cat. I just tried to personally help somebody help their sister adopt a cat, and she had been denied for being too old to adopt at 78. (laughs) She was um, turned away from another organization because of another random reason. She had difficulties somewhere else because the adoption fee was almost $300 for a cat. So, you know, try to make it easy for people to come in. You know, if somebody wants to adopt a cat, it shouldn't take three people across three different states to try to find this woman an adoptable cat. I bet there are people listening who are like, uh, I have cats. Please give me that lady's number. Uh, Well, listen, as we wrap up, Stacey, can you explain how people can get involved with the Network Partner Program with you and the rest of the regional programs team? Yeah, definitely. If groups are interested in learning about any of the programs we talked about, any of the ideas, our Network Partner website has all of this information. We have everything set up by topic. You can watch webinars, you can look at manuals, you can go 
to the podcast. You know, you get all those different forms of media depending on what you like to have to learn. And there's so much information out there. If you're thinking about a program, we probably have a source of information to help you with that. And then the network website also has all of our contact information so you can find out who your regional representative is. And it's really easy to reach out to us for at least for our teams. We have the Midwest at bestfriends.org email and the Great Plains at bestfriends.org email. And you know, if you find any email, send your question, we're going to get you to the right person, regardless of where you're looking for. Links in the show notes on your player, also at bestfriends.org slash podcast. Obviously, we barely scratched the surface with each of these big topics. There will be more to come throughout the year on all of them. But I am glad we had a chance to chat. Stacy. enjoyed every time. Uh, and, and hopefully we can just remember every problem has a solution. But when you see a community shift to any of these proven life-saving strategies, boy, it just makes a huge difference. It's all just small changes. And you know, we tell groups, make changes at the pace that you're comfortable with. If you have the staffing to make one change a month or one change a quarter, you know, see what you want to do, set out that strategic plan, and then just start chipping away at the areas where you want to make improvement. The team behind the Best Friends podcast, Tawny Hammond, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends podcast.